Chapter 5, Part 2 of Sentimental Education. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The two friends walked towards their own destination. An east wind was blowing. They did not exchange a word. De Laurier was regretting that he had not succeeded in making us shine before a certain newspaper manager, and Frederick was lost once more in his melancholy broodings. At length, breaking silence, he said that this public-house ball appeared to him a stupid affair. Whose fault is it, if you had not left us to join that Arnoux of yours? Bah! Anything I could have done would have been utterly useless. But the clerk had theories of his own. All that was necessary in order to get a thing was to desire it strongly. Nevertheless, you yourself a little while ago. I don't care a straw about that sort of thing, returned the Laurier, cutting short Frederick's illusion. Am I going to get entangled with women? And he declaimed against their affectations, their silly ways, in short, he disliked them. Don't be acting, then, said Frederick. De Laurier became silent, then all at once. Will you bet me a hundred francs that I won't do the first woman that passes? Yes, it's a bet. The first who passed was the hideous-looking beggar woman, and they were giving up all hope of a chance presenting itself, when, in the middle of the rue de Rivoli, they saw a tall girl with a little bandbox in her hand. De Laurier accosted her under the arcades. She turned up abruptly by the Tuileries, and soon diverged into the place de Carousel. She glanced to the right and to the left. She ran after a hackney-coach. De Laurier overtook her. He walked by her side, talking to her with expressive gestures. At length, she accepted his arm, and they went on together along the quay. Then, when they reached the rising ground in front of the Châtelet, they kept tramping up and down for at least twenty minutes, like two sailors keeping watch. But all of a sudden, they passed over the Pont de Change, through the flower market, and along the Quai Napoleon. Frederick came up behind them. De Laurier gave him to understand that he would be in their way, and had only to follow his own example. How much have you got still? Two hundred sous pieces. That's enough. Good night to you. Frederick was seized with the astonishment what feels at seeing a piece of foolery coming to a successful issue. He has the laugh at me, was his reflection. Suppose I went back again. Perhaps the Laurier imagined that he was envious of this paltry love. As if I had not won a hundred times more rare, more noble, more absorbing. He felt a sort of angry feeling impelling him onward. He arrived in front of Madame Arnoux's door. None of the outer windows belonged to her apartment. Nevertheless, he remained with his eyes pasted on the front of the house, as if he fancied he could, by his contemplation, break open the walls. No doubt she was now sunk in repose, tranquil as a sleeping flower, with her beautiful black hair resting on the lace of the pillow, her lips slightly parted, and one arm under her head. Then Arnoux's head rose before him, and he rushed away to escape from his vision. The advice which de Laurier had given to him came back to his memory. It only filled him with horror. Then he walked about the streets in a vagabond fashion. When a pedestrian approached, he tried to distinguish the face. From time to time a ray of light passed between his legs, tracing a great quarter of a circle on the pavement, and in the shadow a man appeared with his dosser and his lantern. The wind, at certain points, made the sheet-iron flue of a chimney-shake. Distant sounds reached his ears, mingling with the buzzing in his brain, and it seemed to him that he was listening to the indistinct flourish of quadrille music. His movements as he walked on kept up this illusion. He found himself on the Pont de la Concorde. Then he recalled that evening in the previous winter, when, as he left her house for the first time, he was forced to stand still. So rapidly did his heart beat with the hopes that held it in their clasp. And now they had all withered. Dark clouds were drifting across the face of the moon. He gazed at it, musing on the vastness of space, the wretchedness of life, the nothingness of everything. The day dawned, his teeth began to chatter, and half asleep, wet with the morning mist, and bathed in tears, he asked himself, why should I not make an end of it? All that was necessary was a single movement. The weight of his forehead dragged him along. He beheld his own dead body floating in the water. Frederick stooped down. The parapet was rather wide, and it was through pure weariness that he did not make an attempt to leap over it. Then a feeling of dismay swept over him. He reached the boulevards once more, 
and sank down upon a seat. He was roused by some police officers who were convinced that he had been indulging a little too freely. He resumed his walk, but as he was exceedingly hungry, and as all the restaurants were closed, he went to get a snack at a tavern by the fish markets. After which, thinking it too soon to go in yet, he kept sauntering about the Hôtel de Ville till a quarter past eight. Delaurier had long since got rid of his wench, and he was writing at the table in the middle of his room. About four o'clock, Monsieur de Sissi came in. Thanks to Dusardier, he had enjoyed the society of a lady the night before, and he had even accompanied her home in the carriage with her husband to the very threshold of their house, where she had given him an assignation. He parted with her without even knowing her name. "'And what do you propose that I should do in that way?' said Frederick. Thereupon the young gentleman began to cudgel his brains to think of a suitable woman. He mentioned Mademoiselle Vatnas, the Andalusian, and all the rest. At length, with much circumlocution, he stated the object of his visit. Relying on the discretion of his friend, he came to aid him in taking an important step, after which he might definitely regard himself as a man, and Frederick showed no reluctance. He told the story to Delaurier without relating the facts with reference to himself personally. The clerk was of opinion that he was now going on very well. His respect for his advice increased his good humour. He owed to that quality his success on the very first night he met her with Mademoiselle Clemence Davier, embroideress in gold for military outfits, the sweetest creature that ever lived, as slender as a reed with large blue eyes perpetually staring with wonder. The clerk had taken advantage of her credulity to such an extent as to make her believe that he had been decorated. At their private conversations he had his frock coat adorned with a red ribbon, but divested himself of it in public in order, as he put it, not to humiliate his master. However, he kept her at a distance, allowed himself to be fond upon like a pasha, and, in a laughing sort of way, called her daughter of the people. Every time they met, she brought him little bunches of violets. Frederick would not have cared for her love affair of this sort. Meanwhile, whenever they set forth arm-in-arm arm to visit Pinson's or Barillon's circulating library, he experienced a feeling of singular depression. Frederick did not realize how much pain he had made de Laurier endure for the past year, while brushing his nails before going out to dine in the Rue de Choiselle. One evening, when from the commanding position in which his balcony stood, he had just been watching them as they went out together, he saw Ouzonet some distance off on the Pont d'Arcole. The bohemian began calling him by making signals toward him, and, when Frederick had descended the five flights of stairs, here is the thing. It is next Saturday, the 24th, Madame Arnoux's feast day. How is that when her name is Marie? And Angèle also. No matter. They will entertain their guests at their country house at Saint-Claude. I was told to give you due notice about it. You'll find a vehicle at the magazine office at three o'clock. So that makes matters all right. Excuse me for having disturbed you, but I have such a number of calls to make. Frederick had scarcely turned round when his doorkeeper placed a letter in his hand. Monsieur and Madame d'Ambreuse beg of Monsieur F. Moreau to do them the honour to come and dine with them on Saturday the 24th, inst. RSVP. Too late, he said to himself. Nevertheless, he showed the letter to de Laurier, who exclaimed, Ha! Ah, at last! But you don't look as if you were satisfied. Why? After some little hesitation, Frederick said that he had another invitation for the same day. Be kind enough to let me run across to the Rue de Choiselle. I'm not joking. I'll answer this for you if it puts you about and the clerk wrote an acceptance to the invitation in the third person. Having seen nothing of the world save through the fever of his desires, he pictured to himself as an artificial creation discharging its functions by virtue of mathematical laws. A dinner in the city, an accidental meeting with a man in office, a smile from a pretty woman might, by a series of actions deducing themselves from one another, have gigantic results. Certain Parisian drawing-rooms were like those machines which take a material in the rough and render it a hundred times more valuable. He believed in courtesans advising diplomatists, in wealthy marriages brought about by intrigues, in the cleverness of convicts, and the capacity of strong men for getting the better of fortune. In short, he considered it so useful to visit the Dambreuse 
and talked about it so plausibly that Frederick was at a loss to know what was the best course to take. The least he ought to do, as it was Madame Arnoux's feast day, was to make her a present. He naturally thought of a parasol in order to make reparation for his awkwardness. Now he came across a shot silk parasol with a little carved ivory handle, which had come all the way from China, but the price of it was a hundred and seventy-five francs, and he had not a sou, having in fact to live on the credit of his next quarter's allowance. However, he wished to get it, he was determined to have it, and in spite of his repugnance to doing so, he had recourse to the Laurier. The Laurier answered Frederick's first question by saying that he had no money. I want some, said Frederick, I want some very badly. As the other made the same excuse over again, he flew into a passion. You might find it to your advantage sometime. What do you mean by that? Oh, nothing. The clerk understood. He took the sum required out of his reserve fund, and when he had counted out the money, coin by coin, I am not asking you for a receipt, as I see you have a lot of expense. Frederick threw himself on his friend's neck with a thousand affectionate protestations. De Laurier received this display of affection frigidly. Then, next morning, noticing the parasol on the top of the piano. Ah, it was for that. I will send it, perhaps, said Frederick, with an air of carelessness. Good fortune was on his side, for that evening he got a note with the black border from Madame d'Ambreuse, announcing to him that she had lost an uncle, and excusing herself for having to defer till a later period the pleasure of making his acquaintance. At two o'clock he reached the office of the art journal. Instead of waiting for him in order to drive him in his carriage, Arnoux had left the city the night before, unable to resist his desire to get some fresh air. Every year it was his custom, as soon as the leaves were budding forth, to start early in the morning and to remain away several days, making long journeys across the fields, drinking milk at the farmhouses, romping with the village girls, asking questions about the harvest, and carrying back home with him stalks of salad in his pocket handkerchief. At length, in order to realize the long-cherished dream of his, he had bought a country house. While Frederick was talking to the picture dealer's clerk, Mademoiselle Vatnas suddenly made her appearance, and was disappointed at not seeing Arnoux. He would, perhaps, be remaining away two days longer the clerk had advised her to go there she could not go there to write a letter she was afraid the letter might get lost frederick offered to be the bearer of it himself she rapidly scribbled off a letter and implored of him to let nobody see him delivering it forty minutes afterwards he found himself at st claude the house which was about a hundred paces farther away than the bridge stood halfway up the hill the garden walls were hidden by two rows of linden trees and a wide lawn descended to the bank of the river the railed entrance before the door was open and frederick went in Arnoux, stretched on the grass, was playing with a litter of kittens. This amusement appeared to absorb him completely. Mademoiselle Vatnas's letter drew him out of his sleepy idleness. The deuce! The deuce! This is a bore. She is right, though. I must go. Then, having stuck the missive into his pocket, he showed the young man through the grounds with manifest delight. He pointed out everything, the stable, the cart-house, the kitchen. The drawing-room was at the right, on the side facing Paris, and looked out on a floored arbor, covered over with clematis. But presently a few harmonious notes burst forth above their heads. Madame Arnoux, fancying that there was nobody near, was singing to amuse herself. She executed quavers, trills, arpeggios. There were long notes which seemed to remain suspended in the air. Others fell in a rushing shower like a spray of waterfall, and her voice, passing out through the Venetian blind, cut its way through the deep silence and rose towards the blue sky. She seized all at once when Monsieur and Madame Audry, two neighbors, presented themselves. Then she appeared herself at the top of the steps in front of the house, and as she descended, he caught a glimpse of her foot. She wore little open shoes of reddish-brown leather, with three straps crossing each other so as to draw just above her stockings a wirework of gold. Those who had been invited arrived. With the exception of Maître Le Faucheur, an advocate, they were the same guests who came to the Thursday dinners. Each of them had brought some present. Dittmer, a Syrian scarf, Rosenwald, a scrapbook of ballads, Berrier, a watercolor painting, Sombari, one of his own caricatures, and Pellerin, a charcoal drawing, representing a kind of dance of death, a hideous fantasy the execution of which was rather poor. Uzanet dispensed with the formality of a present. 
Frederick was waiting to offer his after the others. She thanked him very much for it. Thereupon he said, Why, it is almost a debt. I have been so much annoyed. At what, pray, she returned, I don't understand. Come, dinner is waiting, said Arnoux, catching hold of his arm, then in a whisper, You are not very knowing, certainly. Nothing could well be prettier than the dining room, painted in water green. At one end, a nymph of stone was dipping her toe in a basin formed like a shell. Through the open windows the entire garden could be seen, with the long lawn flanked by an old Scotch fir, three-quarters stripped bare, groups of flowers swelled it out in unequal plots, and at the other side of the river extended in a wide semicircle the Bois de Boulogne, near Y, Sèvres, and Meudon. Before the railed grate in front a canoe with sail outspread was tacking about. They chatted first about the view in front of them, then about scenery in general, and they were beginning to plunge into discussions when Arnoux, at half-past nine o'clock, ordered the horse to be put to the carriage. "'Would you like me to go back with you?' said Madame Arnoux. "'Why, certainly,' and making her a graceful bow. "'You know well, madame, that it is impossible to live without you.' Everyone congratulated her on having so good a husband. "'Ah, it is because I am not the only one,' she replied quietly, pointing towards her little daughter. Then, the conversation having turned once more on painting, there was some talk about a ruiz d'Aelle, for which Arnoux expected a big sum, and Pellerin asked him if it were true that the celebrated Sol Mateus from London had come over during the past month to make him an offer of twenty-three thousand francs for it. "'Tis a positive fact!' And turning towards Frederick, "'That was the very same gentleman I brought with me a few days ago to the Alhambra, much against my will, I assure you, for these English are by no means amusing companions.' Frederick, who suspected that Mademoiselle Vatnas's letter contained some reference to an intrigue, was amazed at the facility with which my lord Harnoux found a way of passing it off as a perfectly honourable transaction. But his new lie, which was quite needless, made the young man open his eyes in speechless astonishment. The picture-dealer added with an air of simplicity, "'What's the name, by the by, of that young fellow, your friend?' "'De Laurier,' said Frederick quickly. And, in order to repair the injustice which he felt he had done to his comrade, he praised him as one who possessed a remarkable ability. Ah, indeed! But he doesn't look such a fine fellow as the other, the clerk in the wagon office. Frederick bestowed a mental imprecation on Dussardier. She would now be taking it for granted that he associated with the common herd. Then they began to talk about the ornamentation of the capital, the new districts of the city, and the worthy Oudry happened to refer to Monsieur Dampereuse as one of the big speculators. Frederick, taking advantage of the opportunity to make a good figure, said he was acquainted with that gentleman, that Pellerin launched into a harangue against shopkeepers. He saw no difference between them, whether they were sellers of candles or of money. Then Rosenwald and Berrieux talked about old China. Arnoux chatted with Madame Audry about gardening. Somebody, a comical character of the old school, amused himself by chaffing her husband, referring to him sometimes as Audry, as if he were the actor of that name, and remarking that he must be descended from Audry, the dog painter, seeing that the bump of the animals was visible on his forehead. He even wanted to feel Monsieur Oudry's skull, but the latter excused himself on account of his wig, and the dessert ended with loud bursts of laughter. When they had taken their coffee, while they smoked, under the linden trees, and strolled about the garden for some time, they went out for a walk along the river. The party stopped in front of a fishmonger's shop, where a man was washing eels. Mademoiselle Marthe wanted to look at them. He emptied the box in which he had them out on the grass, and the little girl threw herself on her knees in order to catch them, laughed with delight, and then began to scream with terror. They all got spoiled, and Arnaud paid for them. He next took it into his head to go out for a sail on the cutter. One side of the horizon was beginning to assume a pale aspect, while on the other side a wide strip of orange colour showed itself in the sky, deepening into purple at the summits of the hills, which were steeped in shadow. Madame Arnoux seated herself on a big stone with its glittering splendour at her back. The other ladies sauntered about here and there. Ouzonet, at the lower end of the river's bank, went making ducks and drakes over the water. Arnoux presently returned, followed by a weather-beaten longboat, into which, in spite of the most prudent remonstrances, he packed his guests. 
the boat got upset and they had to go ashore again by this time wax tapers were burning in the drawing-room all hung with chintz and with branched candlesticks of crystal fixed close to the walls mere Audry was sleeping comfortably in an armchair and the others were listening to monsieur le faucheur expatiating on the glories of the bar madame arnaud was sitting by herself near her window frederick came over to her they chatted about the remarks which were being made in their vicinity she admired oratory he preferred the renown gained by authors but she ventured to suggest it must give a man greater pleasure to move crowds directly by addressing them in person face to face than it does to infuse into their souls by his pen all the sentiments that animate his own such triumphs as these did not tempt frederick so much as he had no ambition then he broached the subject of sentimental adventures she spoke pityingly of the havoc wrought by passion but expressed indignation at hypocritical vileness and this rectitude of spirit harmonized so well with the regular beauty of her face that it seemed indeed as if her physical attractions were the outcome of her moral nature she smiled every now and then letting her eyes rest on him for a minute then he felt her glances penetrating his soul like those great rays of sunlight which descended to the depths of the water he loved her without mental reservation without any hope of his love being returned unconditionally and in those silent transports which were like outbursts of gratitude he would fain have covered her forehead with a rain of kisses however an inspiration from which carried him beyond himself he felt moved by a longing for self-sacrifice an imperative impulse towards immediate self-devotion and all the stronger from the fact that he could not gratify it he did not leave along with the rest neither did Uzonet. they were to go back in the carriage and the vehicle was waiting just in front of the steps when arnaud rushed down and hurried into the garden to gather some flowers there then the bouquet having been tied around with a thread as the stems fell down evenly he searched in his pocket which was full of papers took out a piece at random wrapped them up completed his handiwork with the aid of a strong pin and then offered it to his wife with a certain amount of tenderness look here my darling excuse me for having forgotten you but she uttered a little scream the pin having been awkwardly fixed had cut her and she hastened up to her room they waited nearly a quarter of an hour for her at last she reappeared carried off marthe and threw herself into the carriage and your bouquet said arnaud no no it's not worth the while frederick was running off to fetch it for her she called out to him i don't want it but he speedily brought it to her saying that he had just put it into an envelope again as he had found the flowers lying on the floor she thrust them behind the leathern apron of the carriage close to the seat and off they started frederick seated by her side noticed that she was trembling frightfully then when they had passed the bridge as arnou was turning to the left why no you're making a mistake that way to the right she seemed irritated everything annoyed her at length marthe having closed her eyes madame arnaud drew forth the bouquet and flung it out through the carriage door then caught frederick's arm making a sign to him with the other hand to say nothing about it after this she pressed her handkerchief against her lips and sat quite motionless the two others on the dicky kept talking about printing and about subscribers arnaud who was driving recklessly lost his way in the middle of the bois de boulogne then they plunged into narrow paths the horse proceeded along at a walking pace the branches of the trees grazed the hood frederick could see nothing of madame arnaud save her two eyes in the shade marc lay stretched across her lap while he supported the child's head she is tiring you said her mother he replied no oh no whirlwinds of dust rose up slowly they passed through Autuil. all the houses were closed up a gas lamp here and there lighted up the angle of the wall then once more they were surrounded by darkness at one time he noticed that she was shedding tears was this remorse or passion what in the world was it this grief of whose exact nature he was ignorant interested him like a personal matter there was now a new bond between them as if in a sense they were accomplices and he said to her in the most caressing voice he could assume you are ill yes a little she returned the carriage rolled on and the honeysuckles and the syringas trailed over the garden fences sending forth puffs of enervating odour into the night air 
Her gown fell around her feet in numerous folds. It seemed to him as if he were in communication with her entire person through the medium of this child's body, which lay stretched between them. He stooped over the little girl, and spreading out her pretty brown tresses, kissed her softly on the forehead. "'You are good,' said Madame Arnoux. "'Why? Because you are fond of children.' not all he said no more but he let his left hand hang down her side wide open fancying that she would follow his example perhaps and that he would find her palm touching his then he felt ashamed and withdrew it they soon reached the paved street the carriage went on more quickly the number of gas lights vastly increased it was paris Uzonin, in front of the lumber room jumped down from his seat frederick waited till they were in the courtyard before alighting then he lay in ambush at the corner of the rue de choiselle and saw arnoux slowly making his way back to the boulevards next morning he began working as hard as ever he could he saw himself in an assize court on a winter's evening at the close of the advocate's speeches when the jurymen are looking pale and when the panting audience make the partitions of the praetorium creek and after having been four hours speaking he was recapitulating all his proofs feeling with every phrase with every word with every gesture the chopper of the guillotine which was suspended behind him rising up then in the tribune of the chamber an orator who bears on his lips the safety of an entire people drowning his opponents under his figures of rhetoric crushing them under a repartee with thunders and musical intonations in his voice ironical pathetic fiery sublime she would be there somewhere in the midst of the others hiding beneath her veil her enthusiastic tears after that they would meet again and he would be unaffected by discouragements calumnies and insults if she would only say ah that is beautiful while drawing her light hand across his brow these images flashed like beacon lights on the horizon of his life his intellect thereby excited became more active and more vigorous he buried himself in study till the month of august and was successful at his final examination de laurier who had found it so troublesome to coach him once more for the second examination at the close of december and for the third in february was astonished at his ardour then the great expectations of former days returned in ten years it was probable that frederick would be deputy in fifteen a minister why not with his patrimony which would soon come into his hands he might at first start a newspaper this would be the opening step in his career after that they would see what the future would bring as for himself he was still ambitious of obtaining a chair in the law school and he sustained his thesis for the degree of doctor in such a remarkable fashion that it won for him the compliments of the professors three days afterwards frederick took his own degree before leaving for the holidays he conceived the idea of getting up a picnic to bring to a close their saturday reunions he displayed the utmost gaiety on the occasion madame arnoux was now with her mother at chartres but he would soon come across her again and would end by being her lover de laurier admitted the same date the young advocates pleading rehearsals at orsay had made a speech which was greatly applauded although he was sober he drank a little more wine than was good for him and said to Duzardier at dessert you are an honest fellow and when i am a rich man i'll make you my manager all were in a state of delight cc was not going to finish his law course martinot intended to remain during the period before his admission to the bar in the provinces where he would be nominated a deputy magistrate pellerin was devoting himself to the production of a large picture representing the genius of the revolution Uzonet was in the following week about to read for the director of public amusements the scheme of a play and had no doubt as to its success as for the framework of the drama they may leave that to me as for the passions i have knocked about enough to understand them thoroughly and as for witticisms they are entirely in my line he gave a spring fell on his two hands and thus moved for some time around the table with his legs in the air this performance worthy of a street urchin did not get rid of senegal's frowns he had just been dismissed from the boarding school in which he had been a teacher for having given a whipping to an aristocrat's son his strange circumstances had got worse in consequence he laid the blame of this on the inequalities of society and cursed the wealthy he poured out his grievances into the sympathetic ears of Regimbar, who had become every day more and more disillusioned saddened and disgusted the citizen had now turned his attention toward questions rising out of the budget and blamed the court party for the loss of the millions in algeria 
As he could not sleep without having paid a visit to the Alexandre smoking divan, he disappeared at eleven o'clock. The rest went away some time afterwards, and Frederick, as he was parting with Uzonet, learned that Madame Arnoux was to have come back the night before. He accordingly went to the coach office to change his time for starting for the next day, and at about six o'clock in the evening presented himself at her house. Her return, the doorkeeper said, had been put off for a week. Frederick dined alone, and then lounged about the boulevards. Rosy clouds, scarf-like in form, stretched beyond the roofs. The shop tents were beginning to be taken away. Water carts were letting a shower of spray fall over the dusty pavement, and an unexpected coolness was mingled with the emanations from cafes, as one got a glimpse through their open doors, between some silver plate and giltware, of flowers and sheaves which were reflected in the large sheets of glass. The crowd moved on at a leisurely pace. Groups of men were chatting in the middle of the footpath, and women passed along with an indolent expression in their eyes and that camellia tint in their expressions which intense heat imparts to a feminine flesh. Something immeasurable in its vastness seemed to pour itself out and enclose the houses. Never had Paris looked so beautiful. He saw nothing before him in the future but an interminable series of years all full of love. He stopped in front of the theatre of the Porte Saint-Martin to look at the bill, and for want of something to occupy him, paid for a seat and went in. An old-fashioned dramatic version of a fairy tale was the piece on the stage. There was a very small audience, and through the skylights of the top gallery the vault of heaven seemed cut up into little blue squares, whilst the stage lamps above the orchestra formed a single line of yellow illuminations. The scene represented a slave market at Pekin, with handbells, tom-toms, sweeping robes, sharp-pointed caps, and clownish jokes. Then, as soon as the curtain fell, he wandered into the foyer, all alone, and gazed out with admiration at a large green landau which stood on the boulevard outside before the front steps of the theatre yoked to two white horses while a coachman with short breeches held the reins he had just got back to his seat when in the balcony a lady and gentleman entered the first box in front of the stage the husband had a pale face with a narrow strip of grey beard round it the rosette of a government official and that frigid look which is supposed to characterise diplomatists his wife who was at least twenty years younger and who was neither tall nor undersized neither ugly nor pretty wore her fair hair in corkscrew curls in the english fashion and displayed a long bodice dress and a large black lace band to make people so fashionable as these come to the theatre at such a season one would imagine either that there was an accidental cause or that they had got tired of spending the evening in one another's society the lady kept nibbling at her fan while the gentleman yawned frederick could not recall to mind where he had seen that face in the next interval between the acts while passing through one of the lobbies he came face to face with both of them as he bowed in an undecided manner, M. Dampreuse, at once recognizing him, came up and apologized for having treated him with unpardonable neglect. It was an allusion to the numerous visiting cards he had sent in accordance with the clerk's advice. However, he confused the period, supposing that Frederick was in the second year of his law course. Then he said he envied the young man for the opportunity of going into the country. He sadly needed a little rest himself, but business kept him in Paris. Madame d'Ambreuse, leaning on his arm, nodded her head slightly, and the agreeable sprightliness of her face contrasted with its gloomy expression a short time before. "'One finds charming diversions in it, nevertheless,' she said after her husband's last remark. "'What a stupid play that was, was it not, monsieur?' And all three of them remained there, chatting about theatres and new pieces. Frederick, accustomed to the grimaces of provincial dames, had not seen in any woman such ease of manner combined with that simplicity which is the essence of refinement, and in which ingenious souls trace the expression of instantaneous sympathy. They would expect to see him as soon as he returned. Monsieur d'Ambreuse told him to give his kind remembrances to Père Roch. Frederick, when he reached his lodgings, did not fail to inform the Laurier of their hospitable invitation. Grand, was the clerk's reply, and don't let your mamma get round you. Come back without delay. On the day after his arrival, as soon as they had finished breakfast, Madame Moreau brought her son out into the garden. She said she was happy to see him in a profession, for they were not as rich as people imagined. The land brought in little, the people who farmed it paid badly. She had even been compelled to sell her carriage. Finally, she placed their situation in its true colors before him. 
during the first embarrassment which followed the death of her late husband monsieur roch a man of great cunning had made her loans of money which had been renewed and left long unpaid in spite of her desire to clear them off he had suddenly made a demand for immediate payment and she had gone beyond the strict terms of the agreement by giving up to him at a contemptible figure the farm at presle ten years later her capital disappeared through the failure of a banker at melun through a horror which she had of mortgages and to keep up appearances which might be necessary in view of her son's future she had when pierre roch presented himself again listened to him once more but now she was free from debt in short there was left them an income of about ten thousand francs of which two thousand three hundred belonged to him his entire patrimony it isn't possible exclaimed frederick she nodded her head as if to declare that it was perfectly possible but his uncle would leave him something that was by no means certain and they took a turn around the garden without exchanging a word at last she pressed him to her heart and in a voice choked with rising tears ah oh, my poor boy i have had to give up my dreams he seated himself on a bench in the shadow of a large acacia her advice was that he should become a clerk to monsieur Pouaram, solicitor who would assign over his office to him if he increased its value he might sell it again and find a good practice frederick was no longer listening to her he was gazing automatically across the hedge into the other garden opposite a little girl of about twelve with red hair happened to be there all alone she had made earrings for herself with the berries of a service tree her bodice made of grey linen cloth allowed her shoulders slightly gilded by the sun to be seen her short white petticoat was spotted with the stains made by sweets and there was so to speak the grace of a young wild animal about her entire person at the same time nervous and thin apparently the presence of a stranger astonished her for she had stopped abruptly with her watering-pot in her hand darting glances at him with her large bright eyes which were of a limpid greenish-blue colour that is monsieur hawk's daughter said madame moreau he has just married a servant and legitimized the child that he had by her End of chapter 5, part 2